Welcome back. You're now doing less with John and Jeff, and today we're gonna find out who took a bigger shit today, me or the Dow Jones. <laughs> well, I have to say, if you are able to compete with that, that's impressive because the Dow Jones was down a lot. <laughs> the Dow Jones took a big. The problem shit. is, the Dow Jones measures its shit in points, whereas I measure mine in pounds. <laughs> And it's hard to do the metric conversion between those. I haven't gotten that far in math yet. Now you should have said that the Dow Jones is in points, which is dollars, and yours is in pounds, and the conversion between a pound and a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> like a British pound. A British pound, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But the markets are in turmoil, uh, as they have been for the past two weeks. And we have... Just so there's so much there's so much moving so much to talk about. Again, follow up to our last week podcast. This is why we created a podcast. This is what we wanted to talk about. This is what we've been. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say predicting because there's a lot of other stuff that we've been predicting. We have not been predicting a virus-induced sell-off in the stock market. <laughs> I will come yeah. come clean and say we did not predict that. But uh. Well, I, I would say we're not predictors or forecasters. That's not, because in my opinion, that's what like charlatans do. Like they try to predict stuff and then when they get it right, they go, oh, see, I was right. Like that's yeah. not, that's not how smart people make decisions in my opinion. What I would say more of what you're doing is saying, here's the downside risk that people are not acknowledging and could be realized, you know, we don't necessarily know when or how, like what would cause it, but like, here's the risk at play. And, you know, it, it's not being priced in, it's not being factored in, it's not being talked about in the news. And so it's just going largely ignored. And then suddenly, you know, there's this huge drop and like, I'm not going to go, oh, see, I told you it's more like, you know, Okay, mm -hmm. see, like, probability, like, there, this is something that was not accounted for. Right, by others. You know, that, that should have been. Yeah, that's, um, that goes along with what the definition of a bubble is, which we've been mm -hmm. really pointing to this whole, the whole time with our podcast. Um, the bubble is not the, the drop. The bu bubble is not mm -hmm. the crash at the end or the pop. The bubble is the year's of formation the years of right debt binging and share buybacks and overvaluation and government stimulus and federal reserve stimulus all that stuff that which we can point to every week and say that's not going to end well that's not going to end well that's a lot of <laughs> downside risk all that stuff mm -hmm. is a continuous process over time to say that at one point you say oh you had the coronavirus sell-off it's like well mm -hmm. Coronavirus certainly caused a lot of, you know, bad uh, feelings for investors. That people wanted to get out. People wanted to sell. It hurt their feelings. <laughs> yeah, the coronavirus <laughs> hurt a lot of feelings, and so people had to <laughs> to save face. But um, it's not the coronavirus that's the cause for the the entire drop in the stock market it was a it was a pin that burst a bubble um right 
like the way I would look at it is this, right? So basically what we have been saying, like, again, this is not a prediction. This is just looking at what already is. This stock market is overvalued in terms of like normal valuations of earnings, like reasonable valuations of earnings over a long, long history of time. You know, that's not a prediction. It's just saying, okay, look, you know, there's downside risk to buying into something that has this much right. value, right? And what was fueling that, again, not a prediction, we saw the Federal Reserve was fueling this, this these valuations because you could look and say, okay, they're artificially lowering interest rates. What is that gonna force people to do? It's gonna force people into higher risk assets like the stock market, okay? So the, the Federal Reserve's actions have been fueling this stock market bubble that we've been calling out over and over again. And then when finally the stock market's hit with a dose of reality that the growth is not endless and you cannot just pile on debt indefinitely and just have continuous growth no matter, like that's just too optimistic, right? Real life is messy and the unforeseen, the unpredictable happens. And that was the coronavirus. So here comes the coronavirus. And had the market been like in a healthy valuation, I, I bet the coronavirus maybe would have caused like 10, 10%, maybe 20% at the most sell-off, right? But like, I mean, it did cause a, a 20%. Or how much is the market down? It's over it's 20. It's, it's in a bear market. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's over 20. But I'm saying like, I think there's st still potentially more downside on the table. Um, and my point being was that the coronavirus introduced into a healthy economy, healthy stock market with people you know, who are not all in, like have reservations about investing, considering the unforeseen. This downside effect, I think, would have been much smaller. So to say the coronavirus caused the sell-off, I think is you're missing the point. Yeah, right? definitely. So something you said, more downside risk, right? So you and mm -hmm. I have been talking before we even started a podcast, before the market, before the S&P, before the Dow was at its current level. So at its current level, it's mm -hmm. fallen 20 plus percent. But at levels below this, um, over a year ago, um, you and I have talked about the same kind of stuff. There's, there's mm -hmm. similar downside risk, uh, obviously to a lesser extent now because we've already realized so much of it or mm -hmm. a part of it. Um, but, the, but just going along with what we're saying, the things that have existed have really started since 2008 or started since 2000, you can argue. Uh, this has right. been a 20-year process in the making. Every step of the way, or I'll say a lot of the steps of the, along the way, there have been decisions made that I think a rational person, I don't know, I, you or I could have said this might end badly. And we're starting to see a realization <laughs> of that. So is there more downside risk? Um, we, <laughs> are we going to realize it? I think the question is, are we going to realize that downside risk? Or is the Federal Reserve going to double down, triple down at this point, quadruple down maybe even, with their policies of easy money, stimulus, quantitative easing, uh, 
and try to mask the this bubble crash or this mm-hmm. bubble burst and try to reflate the way they have the multiple times they have in the past. And I think we see today we're getting our answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, the answer is a resounding yes. They will absolutely do that. Because yes. today, in the middle of the day, right? One thirty like, p.m. Nothing, nothing other than the stock market has really changed right yeah. now. Like, right? Like, there's not any news of like bankruptcies that, like, big name bankruptcies that I can think of. Or uh, GDP you know, estimates, or yeah, like no, like new economic data. No economic data. Yeah, no like massive layoffs. I didn't see anything like that. I mean, I could have missed it, obviously, but I, you know, I didn't really see anything on my radar other than a stock market decline that would have prompted the Fed to do what they're doing. And I, we have even more evidence of this, right? So today, the Fed announced they would offer 1.5 trillion dollars of cash to the repo market. We've talked about the repo market before on this podcast. Um, essentially it's just short-term overnight lending to meet cash reserve requirements so that banks can operate function. It's kind of like the plumbing of banking, right? And it just, if it, if it's working fine, you don't notice it, right? Cause it's not, it's not like moving markets or anything like that. It's not that it, it's not, you know, well, important it. to the, it's right, it. exactly. It's just, it's just there to make sure everything functions. But if it's not working, that's when you notice because that that causes huge problems. And so the Federal Reserve is saying, okay, we'll come in to make sure it works fine. You know, I understand sort of the case for this because if the Fed was not intervening in the repo market, we probably would be seeing banks collapsing, like people losing their deposits and just all sorts of mayhem. Yeah, so if I could back up and just interject, one thing to make, perfectly clear the repo market is a standing um it's a it's a standalone market right where banks can mm-hmm. operate um inner bank one bank can lend to the other mm-hmm. the repo operations do not need a fed inter- intervention the fed right. intervention started last year and it was very strange the yeah it, they they said jerome powell the fed chair stated oh it's just a market plumbing issue that we're taking care of (laughs) really downplayed it like you said jeff that it's like it shouldn't be a big deal so the fact that they were stepping in and starting to be an actor being a player in this market which was really strange Mm -hmm. to a lot of people a lot of people raised a lot of questions and powell was like no it's not a big deal it's just us we're just we're just fixing a little error we'll be done by january and then january comes oh we'll be done by march and then March comes, <laughs> and we're seeing yeah. multiples of expansion of this Fed intervention. So I just wanted to interject that the, this is not right. Yeah, the Fed. It's not. Place. It's nothing they to are, be downplayed for sure. In. Like, yeah, like I think if we we ever get out of this mess, we're in clean, and the like people write history on it. I think they'll start with it all started in September of 2019 when the repo market spiked to 10% and the Fed stepped in to, like, I think that's that's yeah. how the history books will start, sure, yeah. in my opinion. That's when the, the madness started. Um, and so basically this is a very big problem for banks if they have no liquidity. Like the whole system is basically built on top of this. And so 
again, like I said, I understand why the Fed steps in. But my opinion is not that this is the right thing to do in the long run. In the short run, it's like it keeps it keeps everything going like it has been going. But it creates a tremendous amount of moral hazard. If basically anyone who opens up a bank can take any amount of risk, any amount of irresponsible behavior, do whatever they want, and they always know no matter what they do, the Fed will always bail them out. So basically what we're doing in effect is socializing banks' risks, risk-taking across the entire country. So they get to enjoy all the profits. We share none of them. And then we pay for all the risks that they took that they shouldn't have. So it's this is extreme moral hazard in the banking sector going on here. And, and anyway. And I would, so I would say the, too, one thing yeah. you said, you said anyone can start a bank. Well, actually, that may or, to the extent that may or may not be true. In actuality, like realistically, there's like a limited number. There's a limited number of banks called, I forget what they're called off the top of my head, but there's like a, a short list of banks that can operate with, with and receive fed like this that's true this fed yeah so it's like a club yeah it's like a club so this club of <laughs> that have privatized profits and socialized losses is and socialized losses is like just so it, it's so the definition of just like unfa- it's uh, unfair corporatism or like cor- crony capitalism yeah. or just it's just it's just bullshit it should piss you off yeah right <laughs> um and so anyway like and, you know, the banks will explain, well, we have your money in our accounts. And like, so would you want to lose all your money? Obviously, I don't want to lose all my money. But my point is, so what? <laughs> like, we're just going to do this forever. You're just going to keep profiting off the back of everyone else forever. Like, at some point, you have to step in and say no. And you have to eat. You have to take the hit, you know? Yeah, I think yeah, there will be think people left standing. What you're bringing up is a really good point. Like, people kind of really, people really downplay the aspect of moral hazard. They say right. like, oh yeah, I know moral hazards and thing, but this is more important. This is, this is we need we need the banks to stay open. We need to be able to get deposits back from the banks. Right. Well, it's like, no, you can't just brush aside moral hazard. What we're saying mm-hmm. is the fact that you put money into a bank, and you say, here you go, X, whatever, whatever the bank is, it is. You you give them money, and what do they tell you? Okay, your money is safe here, and here's a little slip that says. FDIC insured. So this is a little slip from the government that says, if we can't give you back your money, the government will. So we're going to take your money and go do with that whatever we want. (laughs) It just gives them a license to go be as risky as they want. And they say, oh, wow, we really screwed up. This bet we made, (laughs) this short volatility bet we made really blew up. We never thought it would, but eh, it did. We can't pay you back. (laughs) Hey, government, come over here. Pay them back. You said you would. It's just like that's the whole argument. That's the you, like you right. from step one of of making it FDIC insured. You made the bank. You gave the bank a license to to fail, and so they do fail. Right. It's just what can happen <laughs> will happen. Right. Exactly. Like you. Yeah. Exactly. You. You. You just basically gave them all permission to go out and take as much risk as they want, and that's what they did. Exactly that. <laughs> and so you know, if you're shocked here. You're just not paying attention. And so, like, the, the moral hazard thing is so important, right? Because FDI insured, they go, oh, it's the government pays that. 
But where does the government get the money? They get it from all of us, right? So this is what I mean by socialized losses. It's like, yeah, your bank account's insured by you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, it's all of our money. That's where they're getting it from. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, the banks get to have all the profits and then none of the losses. And so that's just like, you cannot have capitalism in a system where profit and loss do not function on someone's individual choices. Um, but anyway, back on to the Fed's announcement to offer one, five, in total 1.5 trillion over the next two days, inclu- or conclu- including today, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, the banks, and they, did, they made this announcement midday when the market was down like 7%. The market opened like 7% down. And they just made this announcement midday. The market rallies, then sells back off all the way down to like 10%. Yeah. And <laughs> so then we look, and at the end of the day, we get a, a, a record of the repo operations. It turns out only about 80 billion of the bids for repo by the Fed were accepted. So they offered 500 billion, only 50, 80 billion was accepted. And you might ask why this is. I don't know to be sure, but at the end of the day, the banks didn't need more than that. If they needed more than that, they would have taken more than that. And so my suspicion is the Fed had an idea of how much liquidity the repo market needed, and they overshot it by a significant degree, basically for the stock market. It was optics. It was like, hey, look, you know, we got your back. Stop going down, please. Right. <laughs> And it did for a little bit, and then it didn't work. Yeah, I definitely could see that. I think that's a pretty good take. Um, yeah, the it's it's almost a hundred percent clear. Like the decision is in. They're just propping up the stock market. They don't want the stock market to keep going down, which is like right. you, some people say that's debatable. But really, I don't I don't see a debate. I th- I think it's very obvious that that's what they want. My take is in 2008, Lehman Brothers was the financial institution that was in the news that was teetering on the brink of insolvency. And it was a huge conversation. Uh, People were debating what should happen. Should it be allowed to fail? Should it be saved? That was like Mm -hmm. within the Overton window is a concept of um, once you start talking about something in the news or once you start shifting the conversation around a certain event, then it becomes normal to talk about that. And it's, uh, an example of that would be like how Trump probably is a good example of shifting the Overton window before Trump was elected. You know, the, the idea of building a wall was like unheard of. If someone said that I want to build a wall on the (laughs) Southern border, it's like, You're like, wh- like, why would you want to do that? It's so expensive, and you're probably just racist <laughs> or xenophobic, right? Like, it would right. just be completely written off. But by the time he got elected, and by the time he had decision making power and and mm-hmm. power of uh, the of legislation, um, he was like, he kept bringing it up and kept bringing it up and kept talking about it and kept talking about it. we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and, and and it got to the point where people actually had to field the argument. They say. No, we don't want a wall because this and that and this and that. And then people started saying, well, I actually think I do want a wall. And so it's like the, <laughs> right. the Overton window shifts. It's like 
this wasn't even part of the conversation. Yeah, it wasn't before. even like a, it, within the, the realm of possibility until it be, the Overton right. window shifts and then um, the debate centers around something that was completely unheard of before. So I think that's what's right. happening with this announcement. I think the Fed has tried to shift the Overton window to not to away from 2008. The topics of mm, should we save banks or should we not save banks was a, was a layman conversation. Anyone could, anyone could be found talking about that at the water right. cooler or at the gym, right? Oh, this is crazy. Do you, hear, <laughs> yeah. do you see what they're thinking about doing? Saving a, a bank yeah. that's been gambling with our money? Right. So far in this, in this go-round, ever since September with these repo operations, the Fed has said nothing except... These repo operations are just financial plumbing. There's nothing debatable. <laughs> right. There's nothing. We just need to do this. This is a this is a financial necessity. Right. Right. No. No question about what. Oh, what happens if we don't do it? It's just we need to do right. it. Right. So today, when they come out and say they they still haven't said quantitative easing, which was the big buzzword in 2008. <laughs> quantitative right. easing is <clears throat> when I say 2008, I mean the 2008 crisis, which quantitative easing was starting 2009-ish, 9 or 10, into 2015 mm -hmm. was their period of broad asset purchases, including treasuries mm -hmm. and mortgage-backed securities. But this go-around, it's all just repo. And what is repo right. to them? Oh, it's just this financial, technical, don't worry about. It's just a... <laughs> well, they come out and announce today a technical move that is including asset purchases exactly what quantitative easing was. It all has been yeah. what we've been arguing. It all has been what quantitative easing is. It's just a different name. It's just repo, right? Right. And I think the reason they classify it differently is because it's such a short-term thing that they're like, oh, it's you know, it's it's short-term. It's like temporary. It's it's not like QE. Right. And it's like, all right, but QE was supposed to be temporary yeah, too. Yeah, it's also that supposed was to be like, Yeah. That, but that ended up being permanent. As soon as they tried to unroll... The balance sheet from 2008, all they built up, like they couldn't. They just, <laughs> they immediately tapped out and started doing this repo stuff to increase the balance sheet again. So it's like, like at this point, it's obvious that money got printed permanently. Yeah. It's just, that's it. We're never going, that money's never coming back out. It's just permanent. Right. Increase to the money score. And so I look at this repo market the same way I look at that. Cause like they might sit here and tell me, oh, it's temporary. It's different this time. It's like, right. whatever. But the last time they did this, it was permanent. Yeah. And so that's that's how I'm looking at this too. It's permanent, you know? Right. So they they want they wanted somehow to do what they did before because it worked it worked quote unquote. Or quote right. unquote worked before because the stock market was going down in 2008 and it went <laughs> up a lot into 2020, right. right? It didn't go down more. They they were able to put a floor in it. They put a uh mm. They were able to put the floor under the stock market and send it back up. All they had to do was print four and a half trillion dollars and assume these toxic sludge that the banks were trading that blew up on them. Mm -hmm. right. They assumed it onto their balance sheet and said, "Here's some cash. You're fine. You know, we bailed out the banks. You know, don't make this mistake again." <laughs> they they just kind of slapped right. on their wrist. Well, they made the mix the same mistake again, and. Um, I guess, so what I'm trying to say, and my point is, they didn't want this go around to include any kind of should we or shouldn't we bail out whatever bank, like 
because honestly, you and I we were just talking about this. We don't know. We don't, there's no names. There's no banks that are like yeah. te- apparently teetering. Apparently, they're all or, or some of them or you know, right. one of them or several. We don't know. We don't know their balance sheets. We don't know what they what kind of assets they contain and what they have. Like each bank consists of holding companies that can hold. Right. Who you know? Who knows what? Um, so there's none of that talk this time around. There's no talk about oh, should we right. save this bank? Should we bail out this bank? Is a, this institution too big to fail? It's just all under the category of repo. You don't understand it, and it's just something we have to do. <laughs> so it shifted the Overton window away, I think, from this public conversation about what are they doing? Why are they doing it? But I think I'd like to make it clear on this podcast that it's no different. It's the same as quantitative easing. Right. Especially coming out and, and, and declaring this kind of magnitude, trillions of dollars per week they're declaring that they're going to offer in, in repo operations. That's like, that is more than, that is like magnitudes more than, or I don't know, magnitudes. We'll see. I mean, we'll see how well, it shakes so out. But Here's some context. The entire military budget for the year, the U.S. military is... You know, we've all heard about how big and expensive it is. And the for a year, the entire military budget to become the most powerful country in the world, it costs $1 trillion to maintain <laughs> that budget. They're printing this in two, a day, two days. Or they, they haven't yet, but they've offered. I mean, well, they have. But th- they're offering this amount of money on the table over the course of two days. Okay. So it's cheaper to go fight a war with the rest of the world than it is to keep these banks afloat. Yeah, wow. <laughs> like, this should be concerning. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I would like to t- make this take, though, that even, even we are getting too into the weeds here. And I think this is part of their intention. Uh, maybe not their intention, but I think part of their success, so whether conscious or unconscious, what the Fed has done is made a lot of the stuff they're doing not easily accessible to the average person when the reality of what they're doing, like the concept of what they're doing is actually very easily understood, but the details of it are hard to understand, you know, even for us who follow it constantly. And so my, my point being is if you really just look at the big picture, what's going on here, what's going on here is our government spends way too much money and doesn't collect enough taxes to pay for it. And this has negative side effects on the economy. It crowds out private sector funding and growth, and it's just an overall burden on our economy. And instead of just bearing this burden like we should and understanding the cost of spending too much on government by having to increase taxes or interest rates going up because there's too much supply of debt on the market. Instead, this third party has come along called the Federal Reserve, and they are creating extra money out of thin air that didn't have to be earned. So it comes from no productivity. It's just created out of thin air. And then this money is used to relieve the burden of the excess government spending in the at least the short run. And what we're starting to see is all debts must be paid. And it's, it's like 
basically our financial system springing leaks. It's like you can mask the problem and kick the can down the road and do all sorts of crazy like monetary manipulations that the Fed is doing. But at the end of the day is our government is just way too big a burden and it's springing leaks and we're starting to see the leaks come out and the Fed is doing everything in its power to keep that from happening. And I, to me, that is the big picture here. And I think we get lost in the details, but at the end of the day, in my opinion, that, that is what has been happening over the past 50 years, honestly. 50 years being the exit from the gold from standard. From like the 70s. The gold standard. Yeah. yeah. Well, so we had all that inflation, right? And then like, like we got it under control. But then we started to, once it was under control, we were like, okay, you know, we don't need gold. Our credit's good enough, right? And that's when it started to creep back in. So I would say like, I would say there was a point of stability in the 70s. And then we started to deviate from course at that point. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. That to, that to me is the big picture. It's just, at, what is the root cause here? It's our government spends too much money. And it's enabled to do so by the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And, and so like, if you look at other countries in history, this is just like one final thought is like, we all go, we all look at Zimbabwe and we go, ha ha, Zimbabwe, they have a million percent inflation. Ha ha. How could they be so silly? You know, we would never be so silly, but we're doing literally exactly what they did at the end of the day. We are printing money to enable our government to spend money. Right. That is what they did. They did it more directly. They just printed the money and spent it. We are doing it indirectly and we're masking it. But at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. And Everything else, I think, overcomplicates the issue. Yeah. Um, I don't... Yeah. I kind of want to go a little further into the... Like, keep talking about this one. I think that's that covers it. I was just going to say, mm-hmm. yeah, like, that actual mechanism of, like, oh, we don't just print the money and spend it. Oh, right. we... The government issues a treasury. The Federal Reserve prints right. the money and buys the treasury, and that money goes <laughs> to the federal government. And it's like, okay, that's just... <laughs> printing money with a single extra step well it doesn't directly buy them for the treasury it's not allowed oh that's true right it buys them in the open market buys it in the market but what does that do it just lowers the interest rate on the bonds and makes them more attractive right so it enables the primary market yeah it doesn't directly do it but like you got to be you know up your own ass to be like <laughs> oh they're printing money and buying treasuries but they're not buying them directly from the yeah. government so that doesn't matter like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Obviously, that's not true. Yeah, any attempt to to rationalize that is just is very feeble. Um, is right. what you're saying. I agree. So we will continue to watch this situation unfold. Mm-hmm. I, going, coming into this kind of crisis, as I realized that mm-hmm. this got, was getting serious, the market was down day after day, um... I was waiting for the Fed to act. You know, they they did the emergency right. cut. We talked about that last episode. I thought that was pretty. That was a pretty strong signal to to markets. Obviously, like we say, they're acting in favor of markets. They want the markets. They want stock market to go back up. So that being said, they make their first move, and there's a brief, <laughs> a brief 
correction back up and then the sell-off continued and intensified they make their second right. move today and we saw a same the same pattern a brief period of of buying and then mm -hmm. continued selling intensified selling so it's like right. it really brings into question is the federal reserve becoming ineffectual which is definitely the end game in my opinion what's What's right, and I I think it's certainly, I think it's losing its effect because essentially, I think what's happening is the markets are already pricing in Federal Reserve intervention, and they just don't think it's going to do anything. Yeah, that's what I said when when we got that first signal when when the Fed cut rates the, did the emergency rate cut. I was thinking, mm -hmm. well, the the market had priced it in for a full day, a, a full right. day before they did that. The market was like anticipating that, so. The the buy on the news or the buy the buy leading up to the news and the selling on the news um, was pretty clear to me, and and the fact that the same pattern emerged uh, today, <clears throat> and if the market continues to go down, which futures are pointing right now, this is three twelve twenty twenty, this is Thursday, um, the market the futures are indicating a a, a continuation down, so. Mm -hmm. uh if this is if that's really the case i mean the, the fed has the fed has continuously said we have a lot of tools available and i'm not questioning that they do i think they're they have a lot of tools they have a lot of power that is another thing we've said yeah. on this podcast frequently that is an entity with more power than arguably almost every other position office entity on the earth maybe the office of the president is comparable is like at the same level in my opinion right but um i think they have i think they do have more tools i think they're gonna cut to zero if it right. by the next meeting if not like tomorrow they might do an emergency <laughs> tomorrow. i think it'll be it'll seem a little frantic and a lot of th the thing right. about the fed a lot of what they do is is pr is like is optics yeah. how do they want how do they want to look to the the populace right they want to i think and and this is what this is just a pure speculation. This is my take on what has happened to date. But I think Powell gave the markets a, a rate cut that they were anticipating. But I think he also is fine with let. I think he is okay with letting the markets correct a little bit. But he doesn't want mm -hmm. this sell off. He doesn't want this crisis. Right. So he he stepped in. He wants it to stop, and it's not stopping. So if this yeah. extremely powerful entity want something to stop it's not stopping they're going to pull out some tools we may have never seen before i think they might step into right. the equities market and start buying buying stocks themselves and this should really really scare us okay um if the fed is starting to buy equities this is this is essentially nationalization of our industries uh in an indirect way right if the fed is buying equity they are now owners of companies okay we we should not want a federal entity to own businesses okay i would rather that business fail than belong to the government because then essentially what the government has done is without congress without anything they've gone in and taken control of means of production completely in a roundabout way without any approval or anything like that like we are if we let the federal reserve you know, maintain our equities through at like purchasing them 
just because we're scared of our 401k going down. We're talking about radically changing the nature of this country as we know it. And this this is really a path I don't think we go, we want to go down. I think this is a very scary potential development if the Fed says, hey, you know, we have an idea. We can step in and start buying stocks. Everyone's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they all want their stock portfolio to stay go up. And they're not thinking about the long-term risks of basically having a public entity control 30% of our industries. It's just like... It, I don't this just is not what America was about. This is like this is just completely transforming as we know it and it's it's really terrifying to even think about it. Yeah, we've touched on this in previous podcasts and it's really wor- it's really worth wild topic why price mm-hmm. discovery true price discovery is ne- necessary for businesses um and why and how government is kind of um, outside the realm of true price discovery because they don't have right. true incentives to act as a, a as a free market participant would have. Um, mm-hmm. They would really deviate from real the real efficient forces that that make price discovery so uh, yeah efficient itself. So th- that's that's like I said a worthwhile topic, but I don't think we should get into that right now just because there's so much else to talk about do you have more to say on that specifically on i guess federal reserve uh the fed yeah so we talked about moral hazard before in the sense that the bank this is creating moral hazard for the banks but there's there's other moral hazard going on here and like you see this on twitter right and so like uh aoc tweeted oh if the if the fed can print 1.5 trillion to bail out banks why can't they do it to, that's the same amount of money as student loans. They totally could just do that for student loans. Why aren't they doing it for student loans? And honestly, that's a valid point. Like if they can do it for that, why can't they do it for that? Mm -hmm. My response to this was how about neither? (laughs) (laughs) But that's, the issue is we're allowing it for one thing. We're opening it, the door up for just everything, right? If the Fed can bail out them, why not us? That's a that's going to be a hard case to argue against uh, because we haven't had anyone who's been arguing for prudency, who's been arguing for, you know, n- no, we shouldn't do any of this in the public image, really. And so when people are going to hear this, they're going to go, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, we did it for them. Why can't we do it? And none of this is good. All of it is bad. And I, I'm very concerned for the long-term health of this country if we just basically decide we're going to solve all our problems with a printing press. Yeah, dude. I And while you're talking, I'm to build off that, it's actually kind of goes into my, what I was saying with the Overton window shifting. Like they've tried so hard mm-hmm. to shift the Overton window away from this specific, uh, you know, life or death, this bank failing will be the death of the economy. So this is the situation right. where we need to bail it out. Well, they shift it away. Oh, this is just a normal operation. They shift the Overton right. window back to the center, and then now people, the all the laymen, all the lay, all right. the lay economic people like AOC, hear that mm-hmm. and they say, "Oh, normal operations. You print one point five trillion for normal operations. <laughs> well, here's another one, right? That's it. Here's a right. It, you know, I'll try to shift the Overton window in my in my favor to this 
to this new thing while we're while we're in the business of right. uh, of printing money to 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 pass things that we we think is gonna <laughs> gonna help out the system. Why not throw some right. money this way? Throw some money that way. It's like once you lose right. that ability to say this is a very specific use case for we need money printing. Well, okay, you've switched it away from that, but now you've welcomed some incredibly, uh, yeah, lofty offers. I've seen. I I saw on Twitter today people talking about oh ten trillion this, five trillion here, fifty trillion. <laughs> it's just like oh my gosh, we have no. Yeah, sense like Jim of, Cramer is talking about bailouts and all yeah. that stuff. He's like a very well-known finance guy, and he's he's like oh. We need to cut rates to zero. We need to bail these cruises out. We need to bail this, that. It's like, where, what, where are the capitalists? Where are yeah. the free market guys? Where are the people who go, you know, it's, it, the, the, here are the rules of the game. Like, you know, nobody gets any favors. And it's just like, you can beat and let the best man win. It's like, there's none of that in the public discourse. Unless you like actually go out yeah. and try to follow them yourselves. But it's like, Mainstream discourse has completely lost this yeah. opinion. Yeah, I saw someone tweet. It's like, oh, we have to bail out the oil companies and the airlines. Because yeah, that's the big one is the oil companies. Yeah, it's like, because they couldn't, it's like, this is a true exogenous risk. Like, you can't mm-hmm. predict this. So to say to someone, to say it to a company, you have to prepare for something like a deadly virus that's sweeping across mm-hmm. the, the world. Um, it's that's unreasonable. So we got to bail them out. And it's just like, well, no, you don't. Like that's <laughs> right. It's not a question of is it sad or not. It's a question of the moral hazard. The moral hazard is right. It's not this throwaway. Just like oh, we throw away the moral hazard for this case because this is truly you know sad to see, and it's not their fault. So I'll give it to them. It is sad to see. It isn't their fault. And I think that mm-hmm. in an in an efficient society, we should be able to bail out. Like I think a bailout can't like that's in a in a in a strong community. It builds a strong community when it's like your neighbor falls on hard times, and you're able to everybody mm-hmm. pull together and help that person out. But that's right. exactly the conversation. Is everybody able to pull together and help them out? That's the conversation. Like willingly, right? Yeah. Like the, the conversation needs to be: Are is that within our means? Like, if it's gonna make everybody else so much worse off that helping that person right. is a net negative to society. We have to recognize that. And that's just not even being right. discussed. Like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the, this bailout will help the society but, for, forever. I don't but know. He, that's, it, here, here's how just I not, would look at it. All I'll say is it's just, we're not talking. That's just not the conversation we're having. We're talking about the wrong right. thing. This is right. I agree. Uh, but also I would say this, like, Especially with like the shale companies, it's like, well, they couldn't have predicted coronavirus, but it's like, you're right. But there may be some people with balance sheets and cash flows that are able to survive this accidentally. They didn't, um, it doesn't matter whether or not they predicted it, but it's like, there will be people that businesses that survive this. And the ones that survive it are essentially the new model of operation. It's like, okay. Like, this is what you, like, you have to have this cash set aside in case shit, mm-hmm. you know? Right. That just becomes the new norm, you know? Like, everyone always says in, like, financial things, oh, you need to have this much in bonds, this much in stocks. And, like, you know, they, they developed, there was probably people just taking enormous risks at one point and just 
getting ruined. And it's like over time you realize, okay, you know, that's a bad idea. Like, yeah. you know, you develop, oh, diversify. My point is you have to let people fail to learn. If you never fail, you never, no one learns. There's no correction. There's no improvement. You just get the same stuff you have now and you're going to have it forever. So if you want us to never improve, then yeah, bail out every company. Make sure no one goes unemployed. Make sure everyone is doing exactly what they're doing today forever. And yeah, <laughs> right. we can just be exactly the same forever. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm a little more optimistic than that. I think we can do better. I think we've shown that capitalism generates wealth. Yeah. We can always improve. And so to just take what it is and say, we can't risk losing anything. You know, it's just so close-minded yeah it's 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 not looking about how much better we could be yeah it definitely goes to something we've talked about on a previous episode i'm sure we'll talk about it more in the in the future but uh losing a job is not the worst case scenario like people losing jobs is not the worst case scenario in fact in an efficient economy losing a job should be not a big deal like people right the way people treat losing a job as if it's equivalent to like falling into poverty or like dying like you would never right. want anyone to lose their job it's just like well sometimes the efficient market will will not will no longer need a business and all those people that have val- valuable skills to offer they're working for a business mm-hmm. that shouldn't exist in a efficient society the uh, the economy right. has has no more use for that service well those people should be mm-hmm. out of a job which will seek which will force them to seek the next beneficial use of their time like it's just right i mean yeah go ahead here's a perfect example i think that a lot of people can just identify with is a lot of people used to be farmers almost like 90 percent of people used to be farmers and then we were able to automate that type of work to a large degree and suddenly we didn't need that many farmers and guess what lots of people lost their jobs but it opened up opportunities to so many new kinds of jobs because we freed up their time, because we did this thing. That's the example of growth. And you have the other way around. But like, let's say, you know, you just didn't let an industry ever shrink. It's like, well, then those people are never going to be freed up to do anything else. You're just going to be stuck. So I like this idea of just whatever we have is, is just perfect and we just, just got to maintain it. I don't know. I think this is such a recipe for, you know, stagnation, misery. I I just think this will never end well for us. That's good. That's good. We talked about that. Okay. So I want to, uh, to talk about this, this stock market move, right? It's a bit, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Obviously anytime the stock market crashes, it's, Certainly, it usually signifies a recession or it signifies mm-hmm. a depression. You know, it's a very big deal, especially today. For a lot of factors, a lot of people are very exposed to the stock market with their life savings. Mm-hmm. So their retirement is at risk and people want to retire mm-hmm. to maintain a decent living standard. So a stock market crash right. makes that less likely for people or, or offsets the ability in the near term. To be able, or in some cases, people have to come out of retirement. Come out of retirement, right? So it is. A, it is. You know, it, it's it's a severe thing that a lot of people 
focus on. But the stock mm-hmm. market itself, I will say, all those things I just mentioned are not existential economic risks, mm-hmm. right? Stock market crashes have happened, and people have to endure. Right. And like I said, it's right. not easy, and people have to come out of retirement mm-hmm. or work longer or, uh, you know, have less, less, uh, like reduce their standard of living, re- reduce their standard for of living, the same amount exactly. of work. Um, but that's all. It's operating within the same framework of what they were expecting, right? I was expecting to retire right. in five years, but I had to retire in twelve years, or I, I yeah. was expecting that I could no longer work at all for the rest of my life and now I have to work for another three years that I didn't want to. Right? right. So that stuff, it's like, it's not unheard. Like, it's not like uh, uh, out of the realm of expectation. It sucks, but it's not mm. like, so with this event that's happened, a lot of people are pointing to it and saying, look how bad this is. 22% or whatever down in the stock market. Look at my losses in my portfolio. I'm so sad. I'm so, you know, all these reasons, I'm going to have to work longer. Um, I don't think we are even seeing the real move yet. Uh, yeah. I think that this stock market correction, as we said, we've, we could definitely see it. Ha- we have definitely seen it happen or ha- the ability for it to happen for a while now. Um, so that the fact that it's happening, it's like, okay, wow. It is surprising when it does happen, but uh, all those factors... And all those factors are happening, but I don't think I don't think that the the real move is in the stock market. Where mm-hmm. I think you could say that maybe in two thousand eight it was, and everyone is able basically able to keep on living their lives. Well, I mean, I think in two thousand eight it was the economy as well, um, and I, I certainly think we'll see that here as well well what i'm talking about is in so for example in the great depression the stock market crashed crashed mm-hmm. and there was massive deflation mm-hmm. which which set the economy on like a 10 year long scramble no one knew what to do because because the that amount of deflation in the dollar was so so far from expectation like businesses didn't know did not expect that People did not expect that. Mm-hmm. So no one was positioned and prepared for that. I think we'll see a right. similar thing this time, but inflation may be the case. All of this talk about the Federal Reserve pulling out their bazookas to try to, to, <laughs> to, to calm this market. All of this money printing, and this, is, and this is what people predicted in 2008, and for a couple of reasons I think it didn't happen. So... Those reasons could very well may hold today where hmm. uh, the money printing doesn't actually fall into the hands of the people. So inflation isn't really realized in prices like milk and bread and butter. Mm-hmm. It's realized in assets like houses or stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, that price increase, that's also inflation. So... Mm-hmm. I think the real move is just getting started. I think we're just starting to see. I've been following very closely the DXY, the dollar index, um, and it's been going down ever since the market topped on February 12th. Uh, 
and the dollar topped as well. And the market's been going down and the dollar's been going down. And the dollar had a slight correction over the past couple of days, but then the announcement of this QE from the Fed sent the dollar down significantly. Um, so I think that that might be worthwhile to talk about um, how we see yeah, it happen. And I mean, like, I, I look at it this way, right? So essentially we had a, whenever you have credit, you're essentially creating money that's not there, right? So just a very simple example. If you go to a bar and you open a tab, right? You can drink beer without paying for it until the end of the night, right? So now let's say this is a cash a cash only bar, right? And you have uh, $100 in your wallet, right? And so you open a tab and you know, this is, I know they don't let you open a tab with cash anymore, but like, just bear with me. (laughs) So you open a tab and you're like, all right, yeah, you drink it for free, but you have the cash to pay for it, right? But since you still have the cash in hand, you're not only drinking, but you're like, oh, let's bet on this game of pool. I bet you a hundred dollars I win, right? So you're able to have essentially like money is created when they let, when they lent to you, right? They lent you beer, with the expectation you'll pay for it at the end of the night. So essentially what they've done is created money, right? Because now you have the beer and you have $100 that you can do whatever you want with until the end of the night. And so you bet on the game of pool and you lose the $100. Well, what happens? is like, okay, well, now I, I can't pay my tab. So the bartender takes the hit. And so you have essentially deflation, right? So it's like there was the appearance that you had you know, $100 worth of beer plus $100. It was like you had, you know, $200 worth of wealth. But in reality, you didn't. And you squandered it. And so the, all credit has this effect where it just, it create it increases essentially the money supply. Um, and so what the Federal Reserve has been doing has been enabling all this uh, debt to be taken out. And what that has done it's artificially boosted our standard of living. It's and it's you know made everything go up, and we've met, we've all felt the high of this, to a degree. Not all of us, but a lot of us. And at then suddenly, when it comes time to pay, and you can't pay, the whole thing comes crashing down, right? All like all the fun and games come to an end, and so that's what I think we're going to start to see, is that this the stock market's just the beginning of it. And really what's hiding underneath is a massive debt bubble that has only begun to unravel just recently. And so as this debt bubble runs out, what we're going to see is that we've actually been living above, way above our standard of living with anticipation, you know, like we've been drinking the beer and gambling with the money. (laughs) And we're going to, we're going to soon realize that when it, it's it's going to become time to pay and we're going to have to work extra to to make up the difference. And so that's essentially what we've been doing. We've been borrowing from our own future collectively as a whole. And we've been living lavishly, expecting that we have savings that we don't actually have. And what we're going to realize very soon is we have nothing 
saved up essentially as a society. We have basically no savings. Mm -hmm. And so when we realize that we're going to have an extreme correction to our behavior to start generating savings again, we're going to have to start suddenly reducing our standard of living significantly to be able to, and, but we're still going to be working. We're going to be the same level of productive, but just able to spend way less because we have to account for all the debt that mm. we created and all the standard of living we brought into the present. So, and we're going to have to pay it down. So what you're describing sounds very deflationary. Right. Um, but, okay, but I didn't get to the second yeah, part, thought, which okay, is you're going there. the Fed doesn't want this. Yeah. They, this is what happens in a normal functioning market. This, you know, it happens. It's like uh, boom and, credit bubbles happen. Boom and bust. It, yeah, boom and bust cycle. Yeah, it just, you know, it happens. Um, and it's not fun, but, you know, whatever. It's It doesn't collapse economies. But the Federal Reserve, I don't think, is going... They don't like to let anyone feel the pain of credit bubbles. They just... <laughs> I don't think they will do whatever they possibly can to keep this bubble inflated. And essentially all that's going to do is convert the, st the pain of deflation into pain of inflation. Everything's going to stay the same price, but the value, or sorry, not everything's going to stay the same. Everything, um, uh, everything's going to uh, continue as normal, but the prices of everything is going to go up. So instead of like people closing down shop and like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, it's just going to be the price of everything's going to go up. Everything's going to continue business as usual, but it's just everything's going to be more expensive. So our standard of living is going to fall through different method. It's not going to be a deflationary collapse in our standard of living. It's going to be inflationary collapse in our standard of living. But the reality is our standard of living has to drop. That's, that's what it's got to go. The purchasing power has got to go down. And it's it's just gonna go, it's gonna happen one way or another, and the Fed can try to interfere. But the, at the end of the day, what our standard of living is due to is productivity. It's mm -hmm. people going to work and making things and doing things and providing things, and that's what our standard of living is. Yeah. And yeah, so the we've just been living beyond it. So the Fed will try to prolong that day of reckoning. As much as I can, but as we said, it's right. very scary if the Fed comes out ineffectual, um, because that means that game's over, and it's time to right. actually realize that loss of standard of living. And it's actually the further along the line the day of reckoning comes, the worse off. The more people will be borrowing, and mm -hmm. more people will be artificially heightening their standard of living. So the further that the it will fall when the crash comes. So. Right, and I think with this coronavirus, all with all this closures, the NBA, the MLB, mm -hmm. the NHL, the MLS, all these, the, the, all yeah. this, that's a huge productivity loss. Yeah, all, everyone's being told stay home, don't go out, don't go right. participate in, you know the, what in what life. <laughs> yeah, um, that's gonna that's that's really showing that we're not producing anymore. We're producing a lot less. Right. So if the if the money is being created and spent at a higher rate, then there's no there's no other option than prices going up, which is inflation. Right. 
and uh, so that so prices going up when people less people are working is called stagflation, which is like the worst thing that can happen in an economy. So it's <laughs> right. It's very scary. So yeah, and so like in my opinion, the number one threat to society is inflation. I, I, I would put, well, other than, like, I guess, a, a pandemic that... Actually wipes out. On levels, yeah. like, like it actually kills everyone, or, like, a comet. Yeah. The, the number one man-made threat, well, nuclear bombs. I, just, all right, there's other ones, but... <laughs> a really, really bad inflation one. Is a, <laughs> inflation is up there, okay? Because yeah. it has collapsed so many massive empires, things that were, like just seemed like they could never fall like rome like people go oh well they it was like because they you know fought all these wars they shouldn't have fought okay but what what was the result of that they took out too much debt and to pay off their debts what they do they debased their currency and that's just the old way of doing inflation you just replaced you know you took one coin you diluted it into two that's inflation and so at the end of the day that's essentially what collapsed the roman empire is you know, monetary debasement or inflation, okay? And we've just seen that it happened with Germany, okay? In my opinion, that's what led to the Nazi party is inflation. You know, it's, it's it has like ripple effects because it's such a miserable, miserable way to live under hyperinflation. Like you can't have a functioning economy and it just, it just brings out the absolute worst animal instincts in human beings. Yeah. And it just represents... A complete collapse, like Venezuela, you know, if you ever read descriptions of what it was like to live, what it, or what it's even still like to live in Venezuela, it's scary. It, it's like hell on earth. Yeah. It's miserable. And so we should not be playing around creating trillions of dollars and just brushing it to the side like it's no big deal when we can literally point to you know, hundreds of examples throughout history. And even today, you know, Argentina has bad inflation. Like you can just, there's so many Zimbabwe have bad inflation and every single time it's led to some of the highest human misery we've seen. And yet we toy around with this crap. Like it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just cannot understand how lightly we're taking this stuff. Federal Reserve has stated over and over how much they want inflation to go up. <laughs> yeah which it's it's like be careful what you wish yeah, for right man. all right i really wanted to get to this we're kind of running a little bit over but whatever it's a lot has happened this week we can yeah, keep, we'll going. keep going um so jeff yeah i heard bitcoin is trading at a discount <laughs> do you want to buy <laughs> oh man what a bargain on bit what bitcoin Something that you could have bought for $20,000 only a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, you can get today for like $6,000. What a bargain. <laughs> yeah, dude. What is it down 66%? Today. Today. Oh, today. <laughs> today. 66%. Um, and uh, I don't think we've talked about Bitcoin I don't on think this we podcast, have, no. have we? Yeah, I don't think we ever have, but... Um, can't tell by our tone we're not big fans yeah and i mean i i, I think we could dedicate a full episode on yeah, to could. like money just like the philosophy of money 
Yeah. And the reason, the number one reason why Bitcoin is not money or an asset or anything, why it's nothing, is the, there's an assumption all these people make is that Bitcoin is scarce. You'll see this. They, there's like these money charts. It's like characteristics of money. And it's like, there's all these characteristics. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's a lot. Like, I think this, this in itself is a fine way to evaluate money. But one of them is scarcity, right? And so gold has scarcity, right? There's a limited amount of this element, okay? So it, it checks that box for money. Uh, the US dollar has scarcity, right? Only the Federal Reserve can create dollars. So, I mean, it's not going to be that scarce anymore, but, <laughs> you know, it, like no one else can make dollars. So it, it, it at least is like, you know, they'll put you in a cage if they catch you doing it. So it's like, there's some scarcity to US dollars, okay? Bitcoin... I know before you, if you're a Bitcoin fan, before you go ahead of me, it's like, no, there's a limited amount of Bitcoin and no, there's nothing else. It's like, yes, but I can copy the code of Bitcoin, call it Bitcoin 2. It's exactly the same in every single way, just and release it out into the world. And what's the difference? Nothing. It's only different in name. And so there's nothing stopping anyone from doing that. And there's nothing stopping from anyone switching over to that network. Right. And this is what happened. We had all these altcoins appear out of nowhere. And this should have scared people who like Bitcoin. This should have make, made them realize, oh, wait, this box that we assumed was checked for Bitcoin of scarcity, because there's only one Bitcoin and there's a finite amount of Bitcoin, was not actually correct. That was a bad assumption. It's actually not scarce. And in fact, you can recreate it an infinite number of ways and it's exactly the same and yes people might like bitcoin better but that's not actual scarcity if i can essentially re recreate it exactly and you know essentially duplicate it and increase the supply of you know bitcoin or whatever so that's my take. Yeah. it's not scarce not scarce um uh, people say that so you could also talk about intrinsic value, like intrinsic value of an asset right. of an, or an, of an investment, right? With a company, you're buying a share of the future cash flow. So you could say, oh, mm -hmm. this company is good at providing this service. That's, mm -hmm. I want to claim to that. So that's like intrinsic value. What's that worth? With Bitcoin, um, there's no intrinsic value. It's not going to keep you warm. It's not going to feed you. It's not going to... Um, I think there's one small intrinsic value is that it allows you to do like pseudo and anonymous okay. so, transactions. That's where I was going. So people say that the, uh, the value is that it's a currency mm -hmm. that there's anonymous transactions that's decentralized, right? And it's actually mm -hmm. very powerful because it's the number one currency in the sense that it's the number one cryptocurrency in the sense that it has the biggest network of verifying right. computers. It's the hardest to capsize and and create a uh, right. a 51 percent attack which means that you can um kind of change the ledger if you have enough computing power it's very hard to do that to bitcoin because right. it has such a big and that's the network effect well mm -hmm. the network effect is also prevalent in social networking so right. to, to carry the analogy of bitcoin over to social networking facebook is arguably the best social network because it has the mm -hmm. most people on it 
which I think mm-hmm. is the case. I don't really know. I'm just saying this as an example. Right. So yeah. Facebook has the most users. So it's the most effect. And, and, and if you create a new social network today, so as Jeff was saying, I'll create a new, new cryptocurrency. Or you could say, oh, it doesn't have the network that's verifying the ledger. So if I create a new social network, I could say, hey, join this social network. And someone say, well, my my aunt isn't on there and my cousin isn't on there <laughs> right. and my boyfriend from middle school isn't on there. So I don't want to mm-hmm. be on that network. I want to be on Facebook because all those people are on Facebook and that makes it so much more useful. It's like, okay, that's fair. Facebook is right. the better social network. But you can't say Facebook is social networking. <laughs> right. Um it, you could you can argue that Facebook is the future of social networking. Say like, oh, it's the only sustainable one. It's the only one that everyone's going to flock to. But you could just say, well, what if everyone shifts? Like, that's just a human behavior. Right. That's fallible. That's changeable. That's malleable. So it's like there's nothing inherent to Bitcoin. Right. Which if you're looking for a safe haven, which is what the Bitcoin conversation goes to, is it a safe haven? Uh, you really can't say that this this verified blockchain ledger within Bitcoin that's super verified by a large network is this is the safe haven because that's changeable. That's it's man-made right. and it's and, and, it, and electricity goes down, the whole grid goes down and it's gone. Mm-hmm. Right? With, right. Which is very unlikely, but it's like, if you want to talk about the realm of possibility of things that could happen, like that's, that's not uh, there's it doesn't require a change of physics it doesn't require a black hole forming where there hasn't been that's like oh we just go back we just revert 350 years or whatever 300 years somehow and that and now bitcoin no longer exists people say like oh it's good to have a decentralized anonymous currency because then the government can't take your money it's like oh that's that's a good point until you have a day where you lost 60, 66%. <laughs> no one took your money, right. but you don't have it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, that's not true. The government can take your Bitcoin. Yeah. They can take, like, they, the government can do whatever the fuck they want. When they show up with a gun, you're going to give them whatever they want. Yeah. That's, that's, that's real power, okay? Uh, and so, you know, you can say, oh, no, it's decentralized. Oh, the government can't touch it. It's like, well, gold is decentralized. There's no single issuer of gold. You know, it's like people, it was like its own currency, you know, whatever. Government had no claim over that. But guess what they did? When the government couldn't pay its def- debts, FDR said, oh, that's not your gold. That's our gold. And they confiscated everyone's gold. Yeah. And so if you think they they can't come, you're wrong. Like, you know, even like that's like we, we we're kind of big on gold, but that's another reality of. If this shit gets bad enough, it doesn't matter if we have gold. They can take our gold. Yeah. You know, like the government is too powerful and we let it get too powerful a long time ago. And so, I don't know. Real power is in human networks of violence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's at the end of the day, real. That's what real power is. the government is, is the monopoly is, on violence. Right. It's just a collective association of violent actors. That's. At, that's what real power is and so the government's the best at that right now and we let it get that way because we didn't we got comfortable yeah <laughs> they called us slipping all right all right so everybody wa- wash your hands <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, we, I just realized we like hardly even talked about coronavirus. Yeah, we did. We, but that's kind of the point. Is like, yeah, what we were saying is, you know, at at the economic heart of the issue, I think the coronavirus impact is actually not the biggest issue. Here. Yeah, right. Still should wash your hands though. Yeah. All right, everybody, keep doing less. See you next week. <laughs> Sorry, we've been <laughs> releasing right, episodes. Easy so late we'll try to be better at that but thanks for listening yeah see you later do less <laughs> <laughs>